Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of What Should I Think About? So I sat down, virtually of course, with two ex-Jehovah's Witnesses, producer Bob and Jordan Robertson, to talk about some of the lectures from the International Cultic Studies Association convention. We had planned to cover three or four of the lectures, but we got so into it that we only managed to talk about one. So it looks like this will be the first of a series of bonus episodes looking at these talks. I really hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. And um, so today I've got producer Bob to talk about um, some of the lectures. Welcome producer Bob. Hello. And we've also got Jordan Robertson from the Shund Experience and he's also here to uh, talk about some of the lectures that we are going to be discussing. Welcome to the programme, Jordan. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure again. Excellent. Right. Okay. So uh, what we're going to do, there was a lot of material in this convention. It was a three-day convention. There were lots and lots of lectures. And so we decided to have a look at um, some sort of general themes. And we thought a good theme to start with would be uh, being raised in some sort of cult, high control group, coercive situation, and what that does to you when you leave. So we're going to have a look at three lectures, stroke four lectures, that kind of dealt with those subjects, and um, and we're going to see what we can we can get out of them. So uh, we, we're going to start, I think, with a lecture by a researcher called Jill Harvey, and her lecture is called Exploring Fundamentalist Religion and Childhood, One Lived Experience of the Impact on Mental Health and Wellbeing. Um, so, producer Bob, this is one that you were very interested in. So would you be able to just tell us a little bit about what you got from that lecture? Yeah, sure. So the reason that I was so interested in this um, research was actually that I took part in it. So um, when I left the Jehovah's Witness religion um, at the start of the pandemic, I had a counsellor that I'd been involved with previously that I went back to because when I was having counselling prior to the pandemic and prior to me leaving the Jehovah's Witnesses, um, we had concluded that I couldn't go any further in my counselling because the main problem in my life was that I was a member of a court that was the Jehovah's Witnesses. And until I was able to sort that out and get that myself mentally um, sorted with that, there really was nothing else further that the counsellor could help me with. So when I um, approached her and said, I've got some great news for you. I've left the call. And she was obviously really (laughs) excited. And um, she was an amazing counsellor. She was really, really good counsellor. And she did say to me that she was actually involved in doing some research for this Jill Harvey paper that Jill was doing. And she asked me if I would mind being part of the research and basically recording our sessions, which I didn't mind at all because I... I'm all for helping other people. So when I saw that this was on the um, re- the Cultic Association um, programme, I was really interested in the conclusions that Jill had come to because obviously, for me, it had a personal interest. 
Mm. So that was my background with that. So when I listened to um, Jill's conclusions and how she had actually gone about her research and stuff, um, obviously that was why it was so interesting to me. So that was my personal interest okay. in that. Great. So um, what what was Jill's um, motivation for doing it? Because I think she, she'd been a, um, yeah, her, a member. Yeah, her background, she, she um, said that her her own background was that she had been you know mm. raised in a high control religion or cult apparently she her mother actually went into one when she was young three years old which is very similar to myself I was oh, wow. um, my family went into the Jehovah's Witness religion when I was five years old right so similar sort of ages and she said that how her mother went into it and how she converted kind of was very similar actually because of course once somebody gets drawn into something like this they become very dogmatic about it so her mother um apparently brought them up under constant threats in her case of hell which obviously um i don't know what religion she was in but i assume Mm. it was some sort of christian denomination and obviously we lived under the constant threat of armageddon Mm -hmm. so i think that was what was interesting and then also she did mention that in her late 40s she developed some chronic illnesses um which again very similar i mean i'm quite lucky i don't seem to have developed physical illnesses but i was very ill mentally through Mm. all of my adulthood and um i think as we talk about this and it comes out i think this is a something that happens to a lot of people that are brought up in high control mm. religions yeah absolutely um the the research was um what what is called qualitative isn't it so it it's not a kind of big study with hundreds of um participants sort of filling out questionnaires and stuff like that and in fact i don't know what you guys whether you noticed this but um virtually all of the talks um if they were talking about research were was about research that would had been carried out in this way so it's all pretty much qualitative sort of uh, research mm-hmm. um yeah. so the 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 groups are quite small so she called them co-researchers who were her mm-hmm. participants and she had what one two three four five six seven eight seven I think eight yeah. start with, and then one one dropped out. So she, but, yeah, she had seven, didn't she? She did. Yeah, she said that they were also, which was I thought was quite interesting. She said that she found that they were overwhelmingly female. Hmm. Um. So, I mean, obviously referring back again to the Jehovah's Witnesses, I think that you would both agree with me because we were both all three of us were brought up as Jehovah's hmm. Witnesses. That uh, the the vast they call it the large army are female mm. um within this religion so that that just tweaked my interest a little bit as well yeah that is interesting there was um i think only one male mm. in, the, in the whole study wasn't wasn't there um yes. she described her research as phenomenological qualitative narrative inquiry reflexive with unstructured interviews so um what what do we think about all that what does that actually mean i suppose is is a question to ponder i mean from my point of view obviously i um 
my way of doing uh, doing the sessions with my counsellor was I was just talking. Yeah. So I was leading on the interview. Well, it wasn't even an interview, really. She was recording my session. Right. So I would imagine that the rest of the people that took part, the co-researchers, were also similar. Right. Okay. That's interesting. So, um, yeah. So in that regard, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't set questions or anything. It was an evolving conversation where right. I talked about my experiences and um, my counsellor would jump in and ask me a few questions based on what I'd said and then that would trigger further conversation. Okay, that's interesting. So she had some research questions. Um, I'll just read these research questions. Might a fundamentalist religious upbringing be an influential factor on mental health and well-being in adulthood? So I'm going to ask you, Jordan, about your, without hearing the research, I'd be interested in your views on this and let's see how, compare it to, to her findings. So the first question was, might a fundamentalist religious upbringing be an influential factor on mental health and well-being in adulthood? That's the first question. And what are counsellors' experiences? Well, we, we wouldn't know that. We'd have to ask them. So, Jordan, for you, do you think... Um, being brought up as a fundamentalist or in a fundamentalist religion is going to have any impact on your mental health when you leave or as an adult? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, as someone who was brought up in a cult yeah. or a fundamentalist group, yeah. um, because you, the difference between being raised and sort of joining later on in life, um, when you come out, you've got a personality or you've got a version of yourself mm. to refine again. But as someone who's raised, when you do wake up from, from indoctrination of a cult, then you, you haven't got anything to fall back on. So essentially you're like a young child and you've got to find yourself mm. or your authentic self. So mm. I think it plays um, a massive role in a vast array of areas in your life um, including your mental health, because it can have an effect on what you end up doing for a living, your sexuality, your uh, relationships with other people. Um, because cults mm. generally have a common theme that they are in their own little bubble. They're, in, they're sort of shielded mm. from the rest of the world. So when you come out of that environment um, and you, you've got all these aspects of your life no longer policed, um, it can sort of cause a bit of rebellion because you want to go out and enjoy yourself. Um, but uh, yeah, I think mental health wise, yes. I mean, speaking from personal experience, my mental health suffered quite a lot mm. when I when I came out of a cult. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that, producer Bob? Oh yeah, absolutely, hundred mm. percent agree with what Jordan just said. I mean, um, I, again, I know that Jordan and I were both what's considered born-ins and not i can't, can't remember oh. Stephen. you were too yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. so um mm -hmm. i mean again like what uh, just reiterating what jordan just said you do not have the um ability to create your own personality you are already yeah. um the cultic personality that the leaders of the cult have decided is the correct way of living life is projected onto you like a cookie cookie cutter and you are expected to become that person 
So although I do truly believe, and this is, I think, another reason why all three of us have escaped, is that they can never quite erase who you really are. And so your real personality is always bubbling away underneath the surface. And that's why you struggle so much. And um, I do think with regards to mental health, it absolutely crippled me. I'm not, I'm, I'll be completely honest. That's why I've come on your mm. podcast, Stephen. It made me so mm. ill. I was, I was, my mm. whole adult life. In fact, I truly believe, actually, from childhood, I suffered really badly with depression yeah. and um, mm. not being able to um, be who I truly am, and suppressing my mm. personality made me so ill. Yeah. And I think that's a big factor, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I've talked about this on on the podcast um, before when I've talked about my own story. Celine's talked to me about that. Um, I, I can't remember, although I had a, 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 a loving family, I would never say anything else Fine. than that. Mm. Um, I don't remember a time when I didn't wake up with a knot in my stomach, you know, when my stomach was kind of and that kind of nervous feeling you get, sort of dread, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And it was always around, um, you know, sinning against the Holy Spirit or doing something wrong or, you know, um, offending Jehovah or, or mm-hmm. blood guilt, you know, something, mm-hmm. something hideous that ch- something. <laughs> children should not have to worry about, you know. Absolutely. Um, so so I think there's there's that. Um, the whole identity piece, I, I, I'm still kind of, I'm still debating in my own mind the best way to talk about that, especially as a born in, um, because I, to some degree, I worry a little bit about this, this picture of the, the cult self that is created and on top of the real self. Um, it's not a very scientific way of describing it. And it has some risks associated with it in that when you leave, you know, you don't, if, if you kind of use that model, then you're stuffed because you haven't got one of your own. And that worries me a little bit. And I wonder whether we, we maybe can do a bit better than that as a, as a model. It's just a, it's just my own personal opinion, but. Well, with regards to that, I've thought about that because I've listened to your opinion on that before. Mm. And, um, my personal opinion is um, that everybody has their own personality, whether it's buried or not, mm. and who you really are and who, what your real interests are and what you really strive for in your life, I think is, is imprinted on you. That's you. And I think if, and I do truly believe, and I, yeah, we probably disagree on this, Stephen, that the cultic personality is projected onto you like almost like a like a, car, a carbon copy of everybody else that you're expected to live by and your your real feelings about things about your opinions on things etc is buried because you can't be that person because for example in my case I've never had a problem with like homosexuality I have a lot of I'm very lucky I have a lot of gay friends but of course you're not allowed to experience that or you're not allowed to be homosexual when you're in a cult. So um, with regards to that, I kind of like pretended to everybody else that 
that I wasn't um, gay friendly or anything. I just kind of just didn't talk about sure. it. So, but really, my real personality was I was, you know, I'm I'm all for gay rights, and mm. it's all that constant battle to be who you really are but actually trying like you've just said trying to live up to these expectations of who they're expect and when I say they I'm I'm mm. talking about the court leaders and mm. you know perhaps even your parents mm. of who you should be and it, and I do think that people have a real personality underneath this exterior that's projected that's my personal opinion yeah I, I mean it's it's Obviously, we don't. I think the honest truth is we we don't have a settled science on on that. No. I mean, um, the, the I think that the best um, current science we have on personality, which might be different to a sense of self, so there is always that, you know. But I think the best science we have on personality is that it is partly um, genetic traits and tendencies that we mm. just happen to inherit. So there's a genetic factor there. Um, and partly our experiences in y- very young um, childhood through to, you know, toddlers through to years five, and si- five six, seven, and so on and so on. And, and all these experiences impose themselves upon, yes, your natural tendencies. And from mm-hmm. this comes your personality, if you like. So it's really hard to disentangle the genetic bit from the experiential bit. Um, but no one comes out of the womb with a full set of, you know, attitudes, behaviors, values, and so on. That just doesn't happen. On the other hand, we're not a blank slate because we have some tendencies. So, because um, behaviorists used to think that we essentially were a blank slate and it was all about um, what we learned. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know, genetics sort of um, pushed back a bit on that and said, no, actually, we do have these inbuilt tendencies to do certain things, and that's genetic. So I think that's where we are at the moment. But Mm -hmm. how that relates to how we construct a sense of self, you know, might be a different question. It is, Mm. yeah, it's tricky. It's tricky. It is Um, is tricky. I I would agree mm. with you on that. However, I just think, I think the brain is a whole other subject. And how your personality is created is all obviously about your brain and uh, just throwing it in here um i've seen a lot of research on perhaps serial killers and um people that have committed in you know horrendous Mm. crimes and when they've looked at people's brains under scans they are slightly different and, and you know there's that's quite interesting to me because I think, okay, so your brain actually in the womb is decided for you before you even get out of the womb. And with along with that, I think, comes certain personality traits and how you are and how you react to people. For example, again, um, if you are perhaps autistic or you're on the spectrum, you can't change that. That's inbuilt in your mind, in your brain, before you even start, you know, developing speaking skills and things so i think i think it's i do agree with you i think it's fascinating but um yeah a whole other <laughs> a thing that needs to be looked into i think yeah i mean it, it the, it's so the question of of how um how we experience the world internally is so mm. is is so poorly understood 
and 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 psychology is such a broad um set of disciplines really it's not one thing um so you know on the one hand you've got kind of um neurological studies around which areas the brain light up which is trying to find structures in the brain that are responsible for certain things if you like um you know fear centers if you like and ways of thinking about language and memory and imagination and all those things obviously yes they're physically something's going on in the brain um but it's really difficult to then translate that into what is that actually like in terms of your experience you know how does that relate Mm -hmm. to the decisions that people are going to make and how they're going to make them and how they perceive the world Mm -hmm. um so yeah it's it's um yeah we i think the honest answer is we we don't we don't know Mm. um enough yet about this whole area about how we construct ourselves um but i'm still gonna i'm gonna continue to to kind of bang this drum um trying to um encourage research to perhaps think a bit more progressively about Mm -hmm. the self as opposed to this kind of um this this model of you know you pop out with a purely defined authentic self that is then um kind of something is superimposed onto that and Mm -hmm. i mean i think yeah i do agree with you that that there are tendencies that you and this happens whether you belong to a cult or not actually you know we're Mm -hmm. all kind of pushed aren't we into certain expectations i think by parents by friends and family and so on so we're socialized and that means that we perhaps behave in ways that left our own devices we we wouldn't um but yeah does that mean that that's wrong because that's part of socializing you know maybe you want to hit somebody sometimes but you don't because socially that's not acceptable so is that your authentic self or is that your so yeah it's it's um we're probably getting yeah. a bit too far down the rabbit hole um, <laughs> on that, but it's, yeah, it's a very interesting subject. Um, I found Eva's story quite interesting. So um, going back to Jill's, Jill, um, sorry, what was her name? Jill Harvey. Jill Harvey. Going back to her um, research, she focused on um, w- one particular case, which she, she called Eva. And she was a, uh, raised as a jehovah's witness so it was very much around that wasn't it it Um, was was there anything there producer bob that you thought was interesting about that absolutely the first thing that she said was about eva and she said that um obviously eva was raised in this religion of jehovah's witnesses and she said that both her parents had historic traumatic events and her father suffered from severe mental health issues just before the Jehovah's Witnesses contacted them. <laughs> Absolutely ripe for the picking. You know, yeah. like how we've how we've discussed many times, I'm sure, before in the community mm. about how well not just Jehovah's Witnesses, any particular cult or high control religion almost has this like radar that's able to pick up on people that are low, <laughs> vulnerable mm. and they're in. <laughs> yeah. 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 Have you got any thoughts on that, Jordan, around um, susceptibility to groups? Do you think um, do you think it's situational? Can you can you identify with that? Yeah, I think um, 
just sort of expand on that point. I think as a general consensus, regardless of, of cults and their theology, I think they do target vulnerable people mm. or vulnerable people are susceptible to them. Mm. So I found personally, like using my parents as an example, you know, my dad was in prison when he first prayed to God. Right. And then my mum, prior to being married to my father, um, was in an abusive relationship. Um, she lost her job. Um, you know, she used to be a mod as well back in the day in, in London. So she's she's kind of talk about sort of, you know, a complete change in persona. But just using my parents as an example, but as a, as a wide spectrum, yeah, I think cults do target people in vulnerable positions, whether that's bereavement, whether that's a, a divorce, um, a job loss, anything kind of that extreme. I think people need solace and comfort mm. and what can be quite appealing to people is well this group has got all the answers or mm. they seem like a nice bunch of people um but then as you sort of heal from that trauma you know whether the cult is right for you is another question but i think yeah how people get lured in um without having like figures sat in front of me but my own personal opinion i would definitely say that the overwhelming majority of people are vulnerable yeah uh, emotionally mentally or mm. both mm. i would absolutely agree with what jordan's just said i mean mm. thinking back to the congregation that i was a member of um if ever there was a new person that was a study or came along to the meetings I would say to usually my mum, you know, oh, what's their story? And it would always be something awful. Like, for example, that I remember the most recent one just before I left was a chap that he started coming. He was extremely um, feverent about the Jehovah's Witnesses. He was really into it. He was an Iraq war veteran. He had terminal cancer. And he was divorced and he was alone and he was all over it. He was like well into it. I also remember when I was a child, there was a guy that my dad used to study with that was an IRA infiltrator. So he pretended he was in the IRA. He was actually British Army so that he could get in and he could deal, you know, you know, double um double agent as it were mm. um there was also a woman that i actually um became quite close to and she was very helpful to me actually at one point when i lost my job she like would help me she had a cleaning business she was in a severely abusive relationship before she became a jehovah's witness beaten black and blue nearly killed a couple of times it's always a really awful background and um i would i would definitely argue that unless you were a born in adults that are sucked into cults they're not usually happy balanced people Hmm. for sure yeah that's interesting um i I think i I can't remember whether i read it where i read it now but i I think one of the books that i've been reading um it may have been the margaret singer's book but she um i think it's her that talks about kind of different types of people i suppose and and yes um there's there's a lot of that I think you're absolutely right. Those people are situationally vulnerable, aren't they? Something bad has happened, mm. and and mm. they're 
um, they're vulnerable. And and there's also yeah. um, searchers, if you like. And I remember we used to actively look for people who were searching. Oh, he's definitely searching for something, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was like a shortcut to say, oh yeah, this is this is somebody that we might be able to bring along because they're searching. Yeah, you know. Yeah. And and yeah. I think there's definitely that kind of um, personality that is trying to find answers to difficult questions, thoughtful. Um, they may have investigated other religions and other belief systems. Yeah. And I think they're they're quite susceptible um, to to that as well. And then, of course, it is the numbers game, isn't it? You know, if you knock on enough doors, at some point you're going to knock on a door that somebody's just had, something bad happened to them, mm. and they've prayed to God and said, you know, please help me find mm. a way out of this. And how many experiences have we heard that's you know, all you ever hear with people. All the time. Absolutely. You, know? you never hear the, the uh, you know, the hours and hours that people troop around the streets. Nothing happens. You always right. hear these, um, you know, or it's, you know, some poor uh, immigrant that's moved from some war-torn country <laughs> or, you know, yeah. and it is incredibly sad that these are the people that are drawn in because on the other flip side of it, the people that are bringing these people into the religion, again, talking about Jehovah's Witnesses, mm. I have nothing bad to say about these people. No. You know, the, no. I genuinely thought they were helping these people. Mm. And, you know, going back to the chap that I just mentioned that had been in the Iraq war and he got terminal cancer, the man that was studying with him and that had brought him into the Jehovah's Witness religion was such a kind-hearted person. You know, he was all about looking after this man mm. and helping him and stuff. And mm. in some respects, I do think that, they're the victims as well of the cult because they think they're really helping people in Mm. reality they're just obviously making up the the numbers that the the cult want but they think they're doing a good work absolutely as well um just as a small sub point people if they're not um emotionally or mentally vulnerable i think some people just like to belong to a certain group Mm -hmm. um you know they might in their small social or um, settings at work or with friends and stuff, they might not feel they completely fit in where mm. most cults, depending on what ones we're talking about here, don't really discriminate too heavily against people because mm. they just want membership. <laughs> yeah. So some people, even yeah. if they aren't vulnerable in, in, in that criteria we've just mentioned, mm-hmm. I think some people just want to be part of a community. I, they might not even put 100% faith or belief in the theology Mm. Um, of the particular cult, I think some people just like to belong to a community because yeah. it makes them feel good, and they, you know, they've got a, a wider social network. Absolutely, mm. Jay, I, I completely agree with you on that because I would often say to my mum, because sorry, I'll just be blunt, I, I used to say, "God, they're a real oddball about yeah. people," <laughs> and my mum would say, "Yeah, but they like it here because they've got yeah. friends," and yes. exactly what Jordan's just said. They were they were welcomed. Yeah. They've got friends. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think I think that's right. Um, going on to um, talking a bit more about uh, Jill's research, she talks about um, Eva's story. She describes the attitudes that Eva saw in the group. I think these are quite telling: patriarchal and hierarchical. Um, diversity was not handled well by the organization. So we'll come back to that because that seems to contradict what you said, Jordan, but I think both are true. I will talk about that. And to have an opinion was bad. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that was Eva's um, yeah. reflections upon what life was like within the group. Um, so diversity, I think you're right, John. They, they actually kind of want anybody to come in, don't they? So they generally, certainly in, in our um, uh, formed religion, um, Jehovah's Witnesses, there was no kind of you're not allowed to come in because of this characteristic or that mm-hmm. characteristic. But if you think about things like um, homosexuality, like you've already mentioned, um, any member of the LGBTQ community, you know, sure, you can come in. But you can't practice. But you can't be yourself, you know. Mm. Um, so I, I, actually think knew, I actually knew a chap that was gay, but of course he didn't practice. He was such no. a, lo- a lovely man and, and, and I, I felt for him really because yeah. he just wasn't himself, but yeah. It yeah. must be the story of literally thousands and thousands of Jehovah's Witnesses, you know. Yeah. And we know some. Obviously, we, we we've had um, Germ on the um, on the podcast, and um, you know Lloyd's talked to others about their experiences. Um, yeah, it must be absolutely horrific um, mm. to have that. Um, and having an opinion was bad, which is is quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, um, just talking about some of the things that she said she said beliefs were rigid behaviors mm. black and white rules yes attitudes were pervasive and the language used there was always terminology or an insider language yeah <laughs> loaded language called it um so um i've jotted some things out here um people who had left the organization were very bad very worldly out of the truth um, and the spirit of the world. Um, have you got any more of those, Jordan? Can you think of any more loaded language? I, I was going to do a whole podcast on this because I think Jehovah's Witnesses are brilliant at this stuff, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, there's um, just trying to think off the top of my head now. Um, I mean, one particular elder used to say in my congregation, um, the, asset, the the end is on the horizon right. um, or it's just around the corner. Mm. Um, so it's little phrases like mm. that. Um, obviously, one which I still get caught out with now, and Lloyd will, will you'll see that in my interview with him, I'm still calling it the truth. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Because I'm trying to speak, because I feel like I'm addressing an audience of JWs, XJWs, yeah. etc. So I need to get, you know, I'm out of it four years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm still getting caught out with that one um but uh, yeah it's yeah this this kind of this language Mm. of describing anyone who isn't a jw yeah or the out anyone in the outside world and then yeah particular moments in time i mean there's a new one now there's it it was the last days but now it's the last days of the last days (laughs) you know so um yeah there's just a couple i can think of off the top of my head yeah yeah, yeah. And, um, I, also like what you've just said, spirit of the world, worldly. Yeah. Well, yeah. And um, also, yeah. I just thought this was quite an interesting one, which I remember, and I'm sure you you guys remember this as well. There was always talks when we're talking about sex and stuff of deadening your desires. Oh, do you remember yes. that one? Yeah, I do. Dead deadening for your, your body members. Your That's body it. members. <laughs> God. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, the desires of the flesh. Yeah. Desires of the flesh—that's a good word. Yeah. yeah, and a lot of these are little snippets from the New World Translation of the Bible, aren't they? That they just kind of mm. impose um, into conversation. Another one that um, wasn't particularly loaded, but it was just um, 
and when I did interviews for my research, one of my um, participants said he went when he was um, he'd left many years, but he was talking to some friends down the pub or something, and he was trying to say, yeah, it's his it's his sister, but he said, you know, it's his fleshly sister, it's his fleshly sister, and he said, fleshly. what's a fleshly sister? Mm. Because <laughs> you know, actually talking about that, I never ever my whole life was comfortable with calling people brother and sister. No, I always used to say to my mum. Because I've got a real sister. And I always mm. used to say, Mum, she's not my sister. And Mum used to go, oh, I know. It's just it's just what mm. they say, brothers and sisters. It's one big family. Oh, yeah. yeah, uncles and aunties. That's what I was always told. Yeah, yeah. everybody's an uncle and auntie. And I, I think that's a bit yeah. dangerous as well, isn't it? Um, oh, God, I, yeah. Just triggered Jay. <laughs> <laughs> to yeah. be fair... To be fair, I was one of the few kids who didn't call people uncle and aunt oh, really? because my oh, parents, my parents didn't want to confuse me with that. But they yeah. were—I didn't call people brother and sister, so and so. But aside from like me and my brother, all the other younger people in the congregation would always go mm. Uncle Robert, and, and yeah. I never—I don't agree with that personally because mm, you're yeah. just confusing children with—they don't differentiate between their uncle and. You know, mm. or they, or they'll tell you, "Oh, he's my spiritual uncle yeah. or spiritual aunt." You know, yeah. very confusing. Yeah, yeah. it was. Um, I thought that was quite. That was definitely very interesting. Definitely. Um, yeah. I'm just skipping through some of these uh, these slides. Um, what what um, Jill um, Harley tried to do? Harvey, sorry, I keep forgetting a second name. What Jill Harvey tried to do was was look at it kind of in a fair way. So she mm-hmm. she tried to look for some advantages, didn't she, and some disadvantages. Did, yeah. yeah, I have to say some of the things she said that were positive, I did agree with, and yeah. I'm sure you guys would mm-hmm. agree with as well. So some of the things I noted down was um, lots of babies tended to be born at the same time, so people grew up together, tended Mm. to have good friendships. And there was a community, so there would be a lot of get-togethers. And I remember this when I was a child. There would always be, you know, entertainment for the children. Um, There would always be something wholesome and innocent. Like, you know, even if we would... I always remember my congregation on a Sunday afternoon after the meeting, we would go to the local park, like literally all everybody would go the 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 brothers sorry to trigger with that language the brothers would um play football the sisters would sit around on picnic blankets with the children the kids would play in the park or we'd play rounders or we'd play hide and seek and it was a real fun time and i can't Mm. deny that i i did used to really enjoy that sort of that, that time period that we spent together playing and you know playing tracking and all that sort of stuff it was good fun yeah there, yeah there was a huge community yeah. aspect to it which i think it's slowly it's being lost mm. compared to what it was i mean especially when i was a kid as well my local congregation put on two variety shows mm. and so it would be hire yeah, out a local village hall and then people would do certain sketches on a variety mm. of mm. things. Like guitars. And then, mm. yeah, just, you know, and then obviously that gives, it's funny, like we mentioned that, because it gives certain people who are dying to let their personality mm. come out. Mm. This is a time then they can express themselves. It's like, oh, I'm really into this kind of music, or mm. this is my sense of humor, etc. Yeah. But then on top of that, it would 
we would it would be the stereotypical can you bring this finger food and can you bring that finger food and <laughs> yeah you know yeah. reusable plate or the disposable plates yeah. and plastic cups and yeah. one at one one uh, alcohol token <laughs> like that. yeah you know so there was always was me and my st- friend squiffy at the back on cider <laughs> yeah that was just stereotypical yeah. um, you know get together yeah i I think yeah, I'd, I'd, we didn't do that many. Now and again, um, we'd do something. We were quite conservative. Our our congregation really. I think there was always concern that something would get out of hand, you know, and mm, um, yeah. especially if there was alcohol mm. in the mix, you know. And on the odd occasion, something had happened, and so you know, it was all very serious. So in the end, you kind of got to the point it's just not worth it you know it's just not worth it especially as the it was very clear that whoever organized it was responsible yeah Mm. so um that was quite a weighty responsibility if um, somebody got into Mm. trouble doing something Mm. um but yeah there were um i remember even when sarah and i got married um i was telling celine that actually I, i really like the way we did that um, I know not all witnesses did it, but we kind of just everybody we we hired a, a, a kind of leisure centre hall, whatever, and um, you know we we asked somebody to look after the catering, but people brought food, and um, it was really everybody helping and looking in, um, and that was kind of a nice way to do a wedding. Mm. I, I felt so. Um, yeah, there was that um, that community feel, but of course that is again another double-edged sword isn't it because it's that that you lose mm-hmm. if you leave so that's the leverage that the organization has over mm-hmm. you it's it's more painful if you've got this community and you lose it mm-hmm. um, just to, just touched on that point about obviously i mentioned to start with i, I didn't obviously clarify it very well but talking about diversity Obviously, they're not going to turn away potential new meat as they view it. Um, But, yeah, I think you're given a certain amount of time, whether whether you've got a gambling addiction or, you know, you're not of the right sexual orientation. Mm. I think they don't discriminate. But once, I mean, we're obviously using Jehovah's Witnesses as an example, Mm. but I think it's quite a common theme in cults to have that community aspect. And then this is what you can have. Yeah. But if you want this permanently, well, you need to change that yes. and you need to stop thinking like that. And cool. some cults will be black and white with it. Mm-hmm. Others will be a bit more subtle mm-hmm. um, with it. And then, like you said, that that's, I think, with certain people, that's what suckers them in is that community. It's like, look at these people. Yeah. They're so yeah. happy and, yeah. you know, they've, they've got all the answers. Yeah. Well, maybe I should just stop being gay. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, I remember um, young couples, we had a bit of a spate of young couples coming along. I mean, this doesn't happen now as far as I can see it, but during back in the day, you know, you get young young couples coming in, having a study, and then the other one would have a study, and then they'd both be coming to the meetings. And, yeah, you'd at some point they would be told, if you, you know, if you want to um, be part of this, then you're going to have to get married. Um, yeah. So, so yeah. they would obviously do that. Um, just purely to be a member of the congregation yeah yeah Mm. um disadvantages she talked about a them and us culture um feeling different black and white rules 
and suppression of critical thinking and questioning. I think that's that last one there is particularly true. That's a big one. Yeah. Yeah. And remembering this is this is part of the the question is what's it like when you leave? Mm-hmm. I think this has a big impact on that, doesn't it? Yes. Um because yeah, talking about the critical thinking side of things, because you haven't used that part of the brain. That's right. And you know, it, it you can't you can't just wake up one day and switch it on. It is a gradual process to think and take a step back and view it objectively and gone, you know, because like you've said all along, Stephen, and we all agree, the beauty of cults is the members don't know that they're in a cult and yeah. will never admit it. Yeah. So how do you identify it? Mm. You know, and you can only identify it. I mean, we can do it now because right. we've woken up. Mm-hmm. We've accessed the critical thinking skills, but it's a clever tactic of, of many cults to control members and it's just adhering to that what they deem as normal you know that there's a normal in any cultic environment absolutely yeah and then coming towards the end of um the presentation um there's a quotation that uh, she uses which is from hand uh cited in koenig and larson um if beliefs are continued into adulthood so again this is the question is it Basically, is it bad for you? Is it bad for your mental health if you've been raised in a high control group or a fundamentalist group? Um, this quote here says, if beliefs are continued into adulthood, they could aid emotional stability and resolution of mental conflict. So this is suggesting that if you've been brought up in a highly religious environment, essentially this can help you to become more emotionally stable and resolve mental conflict. And mm-hmm. I think the most important bit of this research personally was based on Eva's testimony and um, and other um, bits of data. I think she pushes against that. I think she suggests that on the basis of her data, um, it challenges this idea as Eva nearly had a breakdown at the time of great emotional strain. She became depressed and felt hopeless when she was in the organization because she thought she was going to be stuck in it for the rest of her life. Um, so I think that's perhaps one of the most important bits that she found out yeah. on this research. Yeah, definitely. What, what were the costs to Eva um, for leaving, which I think many of us can identify with if you leave yeah. a high control group, if you leave a group like that? heavy shunning well that's the obvious one isn't yeah, it absolutely i mean the first one that she said was and i think jordan you've experienced this the greatest amongst us is that everyone shunned her mm. um yeah. that everybody that she'd ever known that's it i think as well just to add to that for me as well self low very low self-esteem interesting um yeah. de- depending on the cult um the mindset of like what I had and I'm sure we all had when we were in was you're never like your best is never good enough. Mm. And, and then on top of that, you know, my mother never brought out the best in me in terms of um, supported me. She would always be telling me I could do this, this and that better. And I think a cult has that expectation of you can't sit comfortably. You you can always be working on something. Mm -hmm. So when you come out of that, 
yeah, you can have very low self-esteem in many areas in your life, whether you need to pursue a career, whether you, it's your ability to socialize or whether it's the ability to form intimate relationships with people. Um, aside from the shunning, for me as well, dealing with low self-esteem was a, was a huge mm. challenge. That's very interesting. Yeah, I, I definitely echo that. Definitely. Mm. And, and And also on what Jordan's just said, and I agree with Eva on this one that I'm a little bit older than Jordan and I and I'm older than when you came out as well, Stephen. So mm. I was um forty two, forty one when I right. left. And Eva said, you know, freedom and building a new life is great, but on my but at my age, mm. how do I rebuild life? And it's like, well, you're halfway through, you know, your expected life. Yeah period where do you even begin you know it's yeah. like who am I you know who what do I want what do mm. I believe you know your life's probably been hugely impacted by how you've been brought up in my personal case I'm not married I haven't got children because of my upbringing mm. so I'm like out here by myself and it's like well what what where do you start you know it's like mm that as well it's just literally like oh my goodness that's really that's really interesting yeah um because mm-hmm. i think she said that she had this vision that she could close the door on that mm-hmm. and start a new life you know and i think we've probably all been there as well i remember i remember um the moment i always ask people whether they remember a moment when they when the penny dropped you know i'm actually not going to be a jehovah's witness anymore you know, I'm actually going to leave now or I have actually left and that's it, you know. Um, and I remember that moment. Um, I remember looking at the sky. It was a beautiful blue, sunny day. It was The sky was blue, not a cloud in the sky. And it was absolutely gorgeous. And I, I just remember that feeling of that weight being lifted off my shoulders. But then, you know, it doesn't take very long to the things that you've just talked about, uh, producer Bob, you know, start start crowding in in on you don't they you know what what do i do now you know what do i Mm. think and how do i feel about this Mm. a common theme in your podcast is how do you make sense of the world exactly exactly yeah Mm. so i think i think you get that really strong feeling Mm. there that that yeah i mean like just based on what jordan just said and like about your podcast your main podcast your title is what should i think about and it literally is you are taught everything that you should be told you know this is what you should believe this is who you should believe in these are your political views it's your personal views etc etc and then when you actually break free you're literally at that point then you're like oh my goodness Uh, i think it i I, um can only explain it as a bit of a uh, a sponge and um when the sponge is filling up with water it gets to a certain point where it's so soaked with water it starts to overfill and it's kind of like literally like your brain feels a little bit like that. You're literally like, mm. oh, my mm. goodness, what should I think about first? What yeah. do I believe? And it's like, like for example, like Jordan and I are friends outside of, uh, outside of this podcast. And it's like Jordan's done a lot of research on evolution and, uh, you know, like science. I haven't even begun on that study mm. yet. And like 
Jordan will often say to me, oh, you know, you need to look at this. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, you know, it's just something else to add to my list <laughs> of stuff that I want to learn about. And I feel yeah. like a child in some respects mm. because I've never learned these things. I don't know about these, you know, topics like evolution and stuff. And I want to know because I want to be able to have a rounded opinion mm. on things. And it's yeah. like there's so much. It's like your brain's Absolutely. going to explode. And even when you, and even when you come out of a cult with that particular mindset, it's hard to not look into those particular areas like evolution without a certain bias mm -hmm. as well. Because, like I mentioned earlier about, I'm, I sometimes I slip up and still call it the truth. Mm -hmm. um, I can't speak for you, um, Bob, mm -hmm. but I think when you start looking at evolution initially you might have that occasional bias in there of what the jehovah's witnesses teach about evolution mm -hmm. but then like we've just mentioned about that critical thinking side of things and, and going in with an open mind you then realize you know you you've been essentially lied to for mm -hmm. for, for, your, for the entirety of your life mm -hmm. or your membership in, in in this cult yeah um I think I think that's right. Um, I, I know. Um, so, so the blood the blood issue I think is one that that was fortunately I've never had to kind of deal with it if you like because I've never been in that situation. But um, I remember I think we've talked about it on the podcast when Celine was very poorly when she um, she had her first flare up of um, ulcerative colitis. Mm -hmm. um, a blood transfusion was a uh, a real possibility if if a blood count got too low so um you know that was the first time that we'd kind of suddenly had to think about that question now and mm -hmm. you know you are so bombarded with um anti blood transfusion rhetoric and you know it's it's just it's very difficult to shake that i think um and mm -hmm. you know i was talking to a medical doctor recently who is actually responsible for keeping people alive, you know, and, um, and he was, um, you know, explaining some of the, the, the real situation to me. And I find that really, really useful because, you know, it's, I, I think that is still a hangover. It's that, I think I would have a blood transfusion if I needed one. Absolutely. But I would try and go without it if I could. Really? And there is, there is only That's one reason for that. It's, it's a classic yeah it's still got that hole doesn't it's, it it has and uh, yeah it's not logical even though you're free of a cult for goodness knows how long yeah there are these biases which are still subtly there it's very and, difficult you know it's just yeah, yeah mm. frustrating but a very mm. from a cult's perspective it's exactly what they want even mm. they're still can to a degree controlling members even when you're on the other side yeah yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I can offer no logical, um, no. you know, reason for it. Mm -hmm. It is, it is purely a hangover of of that. But I think, and the the other thing to think about in relation to that is that you know, again, you can perhaps um, allow the doctrines and beliefs that you were brought up with, um, even though you perhaps disagree with them now, they still become your reference point, if you like, and that this is something that. Um, Rob Crompton, one of our first guests we had on on the podcast, um, he's he was the guy that joined. We're going back to the fifties when he joined Jehovah's Witnesses, or when he was raised, I think, as a witness, and um, he was a special pioneer. And then he left and became a minister, a Methodist minister. Um, 
And, you know, for me, I'm thinking, well, how can you, you know, how can you do that? How can you, why would you go from being Jehovah's Witness to being a Methodist minister? Mm. I just couldn't really understand that. But his mm. his point of view was, you know, he didn't want to um, allow his attitude as a Jehovah's Witness about the church and about the Bible and about that to kind of determine how, how he was going to think about it now. Um, and he's got a very interesting and subtle way of thinking about the Bible and about um, uh, the church and so on. It's very, very interesting. So, that yeah. Is, mm. It's really interesting because my mm. my personal view on religion, now that I've escaped, I don't want anything to do with it. I am massively Absolutely. triggered even by driving mm. past churches, let alone Jehovah's Witness Kingdom Halls. Yeah. I, I, it actually makes my stomach flip at the moment. I mean, mm. maybe I'll, that will calm down in time, but mm. how that chap went from escaping to almost mm. jumping straight back into a frying pan it's really interesting <laughs> yeah. Yeah. he is he wrote a he's written a few books he's um he's quite he's been quite prolific he's retired mm. now um but yeah you should, should catch it on the podcast and um it's going mm. back a bit a few a few months now rob crompton his name is um yeah he's he's very uh he's very thoughtful I, i'm not saying i agree with everything he says um, again, that's the beauty of um, of being out of a cult, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely, <laughs> we can all have different opinions. Exactly. Absolutely. Um, well, um, the the end of Jill's um, lecture, um, she she has a couple of quotes here that I thought were quite good. Um, one is from a research called Hand, and they say religious parents hold a tension between the right to give their children a religious upbringing and the duty to avoid indoctrinating them. Mm. I thought that was quite, quite a nice way of putting it really. And you feel that society kind of should enforce that somehow a little bit. Um, and yeah, yeah. I think membership figures would look completely different if it did. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And that's what you know. In my personal opinion, that's what I want. I I think I'm I'm not just speaking for people who have been raised in a, a Jehovah's Witnesses like us, but I think personally, I don't think any children should be exposed to any kind of cult or religion until you're at a very mature age, because for me and for all of us, mentally you're in a very vulnerable vulnerable position. And like if, if something's reinforced, i.e. the existence of God is reinforced upon you, it's hard to undo that. I think religion should po probably only be only introduced when you know yourself. You should have an opportunity to find who you are, your sexuality. Don't let a certain criteria determine that for you. That's just my mm. opinion anyway. Mm. Um, but I'm sort of probably delving a bit more into politics than uh, well, than it's a, a very it's a, discussion. It's a very good question. I don't know what you think about that, producer Bob. I think it's, I think, it, again, I think it's difficult because I was thinking about this in the context of um, meat and veganism. And um, obviously the vast majority of children are brought up just to eat meat because mm. that's what their parents do. But then, of course, now there's this movement where people are, are, are more inclined towards veganism and they're bringing up their children to be vegan. And I'm mm. like, well, where do you draw the line between mm. teaching your children 
your beliefs or allowing them to have their own choices and I think that can be said for a lot of things including religion um and and I don't know my honest answer is I really don't know I mean where do you guide your children and where do you teach your children what do you think yeah. <laughs> well I, I yeah I mean there's a again there's another quote that um, she uses here while parents arguably have a moral right to share their religion with their offspring this potentially violates the children's right to an open future, especially mm-hmm. if exclusivist religious beliefs result. Um, yeah, I think I do think though that there would be. Uh, let, let's be honest. Um, this is a purely hypothetical discussion because there is no way um, in our current society that parents are ever going to give up the right to um, teach their children what they think is right and wrong. And I think mm-hmm. the responsibility probably surely has to lie with the parents to give their children a grounding in right and wrong mm-hmm. and for many that goes along with a religious set of beliefs so i think that it's very unlikely that in any of our lifetimes that, that we'll ever see a difference to that mm-hmm. um i do think though at school and this is perhaps where we're doing a bit of a special on homeschooling, which is where I think mm. there might be kind of increased risk now is that at least at school, children get exposure to different beliefs and different ways of thinking. And, you know, at least some of that, some of the, the upbringing is challenged at very least. But if they're homeschooled as well, then I fear that they don't get any challenge Absolutely. to that upbringing. I have a um, massive, massive, massive problem with the Jehovah's Witness um, culture of a lot of parents, not saying all, but a lot of parents homeschooling their children because they think that's the best way to keep them out of the so-called world. I've always had a problem with that, even when I was a Jehovah's Witness. I always used to say to my mum, they're not getting a rounded education, they're not getting a rounded view of the world. It's wrong. So, yeah. Yeah, well, we're gonna we're gonna really delve into to, um, that subject. Yeah, mm. I'm not sure whether it'll be out before people hear this one or afterwards. But as a recording, um, we're gonna start. We're actually gonna do it as a little documentary. So we we've yeah. got three people we're gonna interview, and we're gonna do it slightly differently. That'd be good. Um, and we want to delve into that because it's something that keeps coming up. And I, mm. when I was young, there was the odd one that was homeschooled, but it wasn't that. Oh. Um, prevalent but i know jordan when we were talking to you you were saying that lots of um you knew quite a few that were doing it yeah there was i think out of the youngsters you know in in my congregation um i'd say the only ones who attended public school in our age bracket were myself my brother and two other guys who we were friends with in the congregation and that is a out of about 11 or 12 young young ones so three quarters of youngsters in my congregation alone Mm. were homeschooled gosh and my personal problem with that is i don't know about your congregation jordan but in my congregation a lot of the children that were homeschooled you would often catch on the ministry or on when I say ministry, I mean the the door to door preaching mm. work that Jehovah's Witnesses do, mm. or on the carts and stuff, and it would be classed as religious education, and it yeah, would drive me mad. If you um, compared the amount of time someone like myself spent in school against 
time dedicated for education of someone homeschooled mm-hmm. it's a fraction of the time mm-hmm. um and not only that i i'm not uh, attacking the people um i'm not attacking their intelligence but these um children in my congregation will be in homeschooled on an array of topics with people with no education mm-hmm. or next to none mm-hmm. um so teachers in particular subjects go to university so they learn teaching techniques they they're an expert in that particular field of teaching whether that be history english literature art etc you've then just got one person who has barely got a gcse in either of those forming that child's education Mm -hmm. and the point i just wanted to quickly make um just scooting back to that exposure or exposing children to religion or cults Mm. I think the the common answer you would get from the religious community or the cultic community is, or those that derive from a religious background, their argument would be that the Bible or their textbook is the, the guideline for human morality. But my argument to that is, name me one thing that a religious person can do that is good, that as a non-believer, I can't. You know, that's just my argument for it in terms of if that's their reasons for indoctrinating or imposing their cult or religious lifestyle upon children. If it's a morality issue, then I would like to see as a non-believer what they can do that I can't. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's another really interesting area. It's, it's something actually that I've put down on the list of subjects um, to, to talk about on the podcast. Um you know morals and and where you get them from I, i'm i'm a kind of signed up member of humanist uk so i'm i'm a humanist i am um, too how are you yeah <laughs> hello sister hello brother <laughs> <laughs> um yeah I so love yeah it. it's all it's it's all atheism i've actually, I've actually put in my will that i want a humanist funeral yeah yeah i've written a will since i left the Jehovah's witnesses and put that yeah i mean it's it's mm. um yeah it's definitely it's my uh, it's my tribe it, yeah yeah it sits, it sits very comfortably with with me mm. um and it is obviously it's um yeah it, every pretty much everybody is a is an agnostic or an or an atheist so it, mm-hmm. and and things like religious schooling and so on is is another area that humanism is trying to um i suppose discourage really to, um you know that that the laws around setting up a school is actually it's quite disturbing, you know. Any any religion, in theory, could set up a school. Jehovah's Witnesses could set up their own school, mm. in theory, um, and skew everything to that. And that is mm. what happens in some of these. Um, well, this is what we have a problem groups. with the Islamic um, communities, mm. isn't it? And their schools, um, which is well, again they're very, a whole they're they're very um, anti-evolution in their schools, and mm. you know, I I watched a documentary where you know uh, Professor Richard Dawkins went into an Islamic school, and uh, he went into one of their science classes and just listened to the teachers trying to teach the Islamic children about evolution, and he was just absolutely gobsmacked at the misinformation that they were being taught. You know, yeah, that's um, that's quite disturbing, isn't it? And and again, it, I think. You know, thinking about our discussion here is is that it's not only actually teaching kids about 
the truth about the world, you know, about science mm. and uh, what we've discovered to be facts. But it's also that exposure to different beliefs and um, that challenge, I think, is really important. And yeah. if we're going to say that, you know, parents have the primary responsibility to raise their children and learn about right and wrong, and I think that's that's got to be right, but children then do need some other input yeah for, um, for you to be able to make a rounded conclusion yeah. about what you what your belief structure is i think to do that you have to research different belief structures there yeah. isn't another way around it so but unfortunately the way cults operate is well this is you know this is black and white you know you don't need to look anywhere else it's, so i think exactly. that's where the struggle is yeah i'm 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 very privileged to um to do school speaking so i get to go to different schools i mean i've only done it virtually at the moment because it's just happened since covid but i go to different schools and talk about humanism um and the kids have always got great questions and to be honest they're brilliant you know they really they really are and sometimes you can it's quite interesting because you can see by their questions how some of them have been already indoctrinated one young girl said um so what about salvation was her question how do you get salvation <laughs> so a little girl of sort of six or seven isn't going to ask that question unless she's been indoctrinated to believe that we need saving you know mm -hmm. um and, and then there's other children there who you know you talk about evolution and um you know, one of the questions that always is asked, you know, how did we get here then? You know, how did everything get created? You know, if it wasn't the God. And so obviously, you know, we, we, the truth is we don't know for sure. That's one of the great things about science is we're always trying to learn. So I'm quite happy to say to the kids, it's one of the questions we're, we're researching. It's one of the things that maybe when you grow up, you'll be able to, uh, to help us answer that question. But then I, I do make the point that, um, if you ask that question, you kind of also have to ask the same thing about God. Where mm. did God come from? And, you know, you can see some children nodding their heads going, yes, that's well, right. That, it's that something from nothing <laughs> argument, isn't it? Because exactly. religious people will go, why am I going to put faith mm. or a belief in the Big Bang and that we came from nothing? And it's like, well, you do, but you just add a God to it that's because right. you essentially believe your God came from nothing and he's always yeah. been there. So right. don't accuse us of the same thing because they so, do exactly the same thing. They just have a God <laughs> added to it. That's a really good exactly. point. Mm. And you can see children's little minds, you know, working on that thinking. So it's very mm. powerful to um, to to get kids to have a, a wide range. So I go there and talk about humanism. They have other speakers talk about Catholicism and, you know, whatever um, is in the community, different religious beliefs, Islam and so on. I think that's a good idea. I think all children should mm. have that that multiplicity of ideas and, yeah, absolutely. and, you know, get used to thinking about it, weighing it up. Mm. Um, so, yeah. So uh, going back to the, um, the, the, the study then, the research question was, might a fundamentalist religious upbringing be an influential factor on mental health and well-being in adulthood? Um, I think the answer to that is... Yes. Yes. Absolutely, yeah. And I think we I knew think that before. Thought, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. So I think, um, you know, she supports that um, with her research. And, I, um, I think so too. I have to say, I don't know what she concluded, really, myself. Um, at the end yeah. of it, um, 
I don't think she came to a conclusion really. Um, I know we've just agreed that yes, it does, but um, <laughs> yeah, she just seemed to sort of like peter out towards the end for my for well, myself. <laughs> yeah, I think part of that is because of the the nature of the research. So because it's qualitative, she's looking at seven people mm. um, and going into depth as case studies for those. So it's not going to be generalizable. So if it's a yeah. science um, bit of research, you can generalize it and say, you know, on the basis of these 150 participants, then we can make some generalizations about the rest of the population. This type of research is never going to be able to do that. So it's always going to be about a qualitative, these six or seven cases um, suggest something about those six or seven cases. We can't really draw major conclusions for all the rest mm. of the people. Um, and so sometimes it's quite it's quite hard to think, well, what actually has it told us? And I think yeah. that's one of the criticisms of phenomenology, which is trying to understand an individual's experience of the world. Mm. All you can really do is 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 understand more about that individual's experience. You mm. can't necessarily transpose it onto everybody else's. But over the years, I've come to grow much more appreciative of phenomenology. I, I I was a big um, anti-phenomenologist. Is that a That's word? That's a good word. That is phenomenology. Um, it's a horrible word to say. <laughs> um, the, the research I used was, uh, the method I used was phenomenological, um, um, sorry, interpretative phenomenological analysis. Sorry, that Try to say that after a few points. <laughs> yeah. um, Love it. Or indeed at all. Um, so, yeah, I think that's probably the weakness, if you like, it's, although it's not a weakness because that is the methodology. So mm-hmm. we were never going to get an answer that said, yep, that's, you know, this is proof or this is good evidence that um, this and that. Um, I think what she does do is highlight some of the processes involved, some of the experiences. Um, but, you know, I keep I keep saying that I think in cult research, we need a, we need more scientific research. That isn't easy to get, but um, yeah, the main thing for you know is at least the awareness is there, yeah, absolutely. Um, because for people who do need um counseling or you know mental health uh, advice, cult recovery or religious recovery isn't very a widely known topic, I'd say. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Stephen, but I would probably say only in the last, what, 10 or 15 years, it's got some kind of awareness, but I don't think your average therapist knows too much about it. It's not a common or very widely publicized issue. So at least they're starting to uncover, yeah, it's only, you know, very minute numbers and it's hard to, you know, generalize, as you say. Yeah. Um, But... uh, I think there's two things to say there. One is you're absolutely right. And and Yanya Lalic, who was on our show, um, you know, very well-known cult um, researcher, and um, she makes this point herself. You know, there, there's not enough therapists that really understand this experience. Yeah. So this sort of research is really useful because obviously the more therapists, psychotherapists, counsellors, so on, understand some of these issues, the better um, the more educated they'll be to help others. So I think that's one mm. of the things. I think the other thing is, is at the moment, um, cult psychology is dominated by therapy and 
and a lot of it is psychotherapy. So it's it's a very small area of psychology. Is currently the field that sort of concentrates on cults, and that's because they're the ones who have to pick up the pieces. You know, so if you've come out of a cult, what do you need? You need a therapist. You don't necessarily need a cognitive psychologist who's talking about theory and understanding how cults work right now you need a therapist so they're the people who get most of the they they see these people and therefore they're the they're the people in the forefront but i would argue that we're lacking some really robust theory around the psychology of how cults work and so on Um, and most of it is coming from the therapeutic side of things as opposed to Cognitive psychologists, behaviorism, um, yeah, statistical analysis of 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 uh, cultic experiences and so on. We, we're not seeing much of that, if any. Um, we're basically seeing um, psychotherapists who have seen hundreds of, maybe thousands of clients over the years, and they are kind of recounting their own experience of that and identifying common factors. Um, which is really useful, but I think we're just a bit unbalanced in in what mm. we know about cults at the minute. And that, again, that's just my my personal opinion. Right. Well, we thought we were going to cover three different um, lectures, didn't we today? Yeah. And we've just done one. I know. <laughs> um, which and I mean, I I amazing. have to say that I don't know about you guys, but the other two lectures we wanted to cover. I reckon we could talk for hours on those as well. I think so. I actually found um, um, Sophia, uh, was it Sophia Clufus? Clufus. I found hers absolutely fascinating. I thought it was a great Mm -hmm. lecture. If you're willing, would you come back to do another one? Would you come back to do that one? Great. Let's do that then. So maybe we we wrap this one up. Um, and then we um, we we get together again to to look at Sophia's yeah and, totally and maybe and the uh, other one um, yeah. about the sexual repression and the sexual yeah that was very I mean that was like that blew my brains that did that actually made me think quite a lot about myself so I'd mm. love to talk about that one as well well let's let's do that then so it looks like we might have another couple of sessions just mm. on on this subject and. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, we'll see. Uh, we'll see if we can fit that in. Great. Um, right. Is there anything before we go that you guys wanted to say? Um, my final thoughts are: yeah. I just wanted to say this one thing because I did actually really like this. This was a quote that was in Jill's um, uh, Jill's lecture that she gave. Hang on a moment. Yeah. Let me find it. So she said, uh, Chen and Vanderwell that said this, and I thought this was a really good quote, and it, it was, it is common practice for parents to raise their children based on their beliefs. And I was just thinking about that because um, obviously with all of our backgrounds, um, our religion is the one true religion. And isn't it coincidence that that's also the religion that our parents were born, you know, that went into or born into? And I just think that that you could say that about anybody. Like, um, it's quite interesting. Like, if we happened to be born in the Middle East, we'd be Muslim. You know, if we happened to be born in Ireland, we'd probably be Catholic, you know, and on and on it goes. And it's Mm. like, you know, whatever you are born into, your family's religion of choice, 
that is your religion and that is the true religion and I just think that that itself just says it all really um and that's why we all need to take a moment just to stop and think that's my thoughts absolutely yeah absolutely have you got any closing words Jordan um I think my closing statement would be to use critical thinking skills and it's very yeah. easy to sit here and say that to people. Um, but like all of us, I spent 20 odd years of my life not using them. Mm. So try and find it within yourself to research externally, validate your beliefs, whatever they are, whatever religious group you belong to or whatever cult you belong to. Try and validate your belief structure externally because you'll always have a bias to your own belief structure. So try and, if you believe in a certain theology, try and validate it externally and see where it takes you. Mm. That's what I would say is mm. do research, question everything. Don't be afraid to be skeptical and also don't be afraid to not have all the answers either. I would probably say that's what you like. You said to the children earlier. Absolutely. That is one of the, the main um, I think realizations and perhaps that is linked to mental well-being maybe it's a very unhealthy state to be in to be told that you know you this this one source has all of the answers this is the place to go to for all of the answers um feels like a quite unhealthy place to be mm. um and um yeah certainly the uh, the research that Jill carried out that we've we've reviewed today suggests that yeah there are real potential difficulties for people who um, who were raised in these these fundamentalist oh dear, yeah. groups great well thank you very much um producer bob thank you very much jordan for joining me it's the first time i've ever done this uh, with a little panel so um i've really enjoyed it myself great. thank you very yeah. much it's a pleasure thank we'll you. be back good excellent right okay so bye everybody goodbye goodbye what Should I Think About is an Evil Sheep production. <laughs>